passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, it is, uh, it's absolutely astounding um, to, to think of um, just how much we learn through observation and uh, through imitation. So children will oftentimes imitate their parents, and uh, they'll, they'll imitate their peers, um, for better or worse. And, and I'll just use a couple examples from my own life. I never took a class. I don't know if I was supposed to. I never took a class on how to mow a yard, all right? I learned how to mow a yard and picked it up pretty quickly by watching my dad. That was just something that I learned from observing and then later imitating. My son, he's, my oldest is, is five. Uh, he's in T-ball this year. He's left-handed. And for the first two weeks of T-ball, he batted right-handed because that's what everyone else was doing and he didn't know any better. So that, again, is, is just a sign that we imitate others from our observations and that's how we learn how to do things. But it's not just children that do that, is it? All of us uh, can observe and imitate and we learn a lot of things that way. So many different vocations, careers, they'll have some sort of onboarding period where people will spend time observing others in the same role and how they can learn how to do the job most effectively. And this is true, not just for vocations, not just for children, not just in the family, but for really for all of life. I can think of other things that I have learned by watching my parents, uh, by watching many of you as well. I, I've learned how to preach by watching other people preach. It's just a part of life that we observe and then imitate those that we observe. And that's how we gain information, and that's how we apply information into our lives. And I can't think of, of really any better way of understanding Paul's words in this morning's passage. That Paul has just written to the, uh, his, his friend, his, his person that he's poured his life into, Timothy, and he's, he's given him all of this information about this is what you must do once I depart. And then, by the way, Timothy, if you want to know what exactly it looks like, let me give you an example. Let me give you something for you to observe and then to imitate how to apply these various commands and charges into your life. For the last couple of weeks, we've been going through 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And this morning, we're kind of getting to the, the end of these eight verses. And, and so uh, we've, we've started each week over the last couple of weeks reading verses 1 through 8 together as a reminder of the context. That's what we're going to do again this morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry." For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, 
and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Amen. So here's Paul. He's writing to his beloved friend, Timothy, and he's just given him this absolutely enormous charge. He's, he's basically said, hey, Timothy, this is God's calling on your life, that no matter what your circumstances are, you need to be faithful to what God has called you to. Specifically for Timothy, that means to declare the gospel that is found in the word of God. And oh, by the way, Timothy, I want you to, to know that God is watching over his word and he's, he's watching those who are called into this unique calling to serve in the church. And he's going to call you to account for every single thing, every word, every action, every thought, both the good and the bad. God knows and sees all. And this is the, the incredibly heavy but beautiful calling that we see here in the first five verses of chapter four. And, and I, I just, can you imagine being Timothy in this moment? Timothy, in this moment, especially if this passage ended in verse 5, if it just ended this way, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And Timothy's left just wondering, well, what exactly does it look like for me to be sober-minded? I understand this concept, but specifically in my life, in my calling, what does it look like to be sober-minded? What does it look like for me to endure suffering? What does it look like for me to do the work of an evangelist? How am I supposed to fulfill my ministry? And that's the, the core or the key of what Paul is, is saying here in verses 6 through 8. He's saying, Timothy, if you want to know what this looks like, let me show you how I did it. Let me show you what it looked like in my life. And it's not going to be the exact same, Timothy, because your life is different than my life. You have a different personality than I do. But let me give you an example to put some flesh onto these commandments and this charge. So Paul, he knows his, his death is imminent, and his chief concern is setting Timothy up for success. And then he uses his life as an example. The book of 2 Timothy, we've, we've been looking at it over the last couple months, it's really just the passing of the baton, isn't it? That's specifically what, what this passage is about. If you're not familiar with, with track, and, and I'm not really that familiar with track because I'm not fast, never have been, but let me, let me use an example um, from, from the track. Uh, in a relay race, there, there's this short area of about 20 to 30 meters where the person who is running the race has their baton and they are allowed or, or have to rather hand off the baton to the next runner. And that is the end of the first runner's part of the race and yet it is still their responsibility to hand that baton off to the next person, to the next runner. And then it's that person's responsibility to run their race, the race that God has called them to, and then they have to get the baton to the next runner, and that's a part of, of the relay. And this letter, these verses in particular, are the equivalent of the exchange zone, that Paul knows his race is coming to an end, that he has the baton, and it is his responsibility, his charge, if he's going to fulfill his ministry, he has to set Timothy up for success. He has to hand the baton off well. 
And so he says, what I'm going to do as I close this book is I am going to give you a flesh and blood example of how this applies to my life. And so we're going to consider Paul's final words here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. This is the final part of this charge. What we're going to do is we're going to see that this is first this moments of what Paul is looking like at, or what is he, what's his mindset at the end of his life. Then we're going to see that he actually looks backwards and, and looks at his life as a whole, and then finally he looks forward. So that's what we're going to do this morning as well. So let's go ahead and start with this, this looking at, at his present circumstances. We've, we've got this sermon series called Faithful to the End. That's the name of this sermon, Faithful to the End. Paul's life from the moment he became a Christian on the Damascus Road to this moment he is writing this letter about 30 years later could be summed up with that phrase, couldn't it? Faithful to the end. But here's the reality. If you're going to be faithful to the end, then you also have to be faithful at the end. And that's Paul's focus here in verse 6, is this focus on not just being faithful to the end, but also being faithful at the end. Verse 6, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. You know, it is, it is absolutely astounding when you consider how hard it is for people to finish well. To not just live a faithful life for the first 95, 96, 97% of their life, but to finish well, to be faithful at the, time, at the end. So if you have some time this past week, or this coming week rather, I want you to take 20, 30 minutes and open up to First Chronicles and Second Chronicles. These are two, uh, two books that are about the, the people of Israel. And, and as you work your way through, you'll see that there's all of these different kings in Judah. And the, the different reigns of these kings will start with this phrase that they, were, they did right in the eyes of the Lord, or they did not do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And it is absolutely astounding as you read this and you look at the lives of these kings, even those that their, their life starts with this phrase, and they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, how many of them stumble and fall at the end of their life. So just four examples from the four probably greatest uh, kings in Judah's history. King David, the latter years of his reign are just marred with all of this conflict and this fallout from his affair with Bathsheba. King Solomon, kind of the pinnacle of Israel's reign. At the end of his life, he abandons the Lord to go worship idols of the nations as a part of all of these treaties that he has created with these nations. King Hezekiah, he inspired this revival in the people of Judah, and yet by the end of his life, he's actually sowing the seeds of pride that will lead to the destruction of the people of Judah. King Josiah, just a couple generations after King Hezekiah, he, he's known as this man who, who just brings in this religious reform to the people of, of Judah, and yet he is killed because he decides to go off and stick his nose into this military conflict he has no business being a part of. It is so hard to finish well. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at verses 9 through 22 of this passage of, of chapter 4. And we're going to see that that's very clear. That all of, all of, of Paul's companions and friends and those that he's poured into, so many of them have, have stumbled. They, they haven't finished 
well. And that makes Paul's faithfulness here at the end even more beautiful for us. It's clear from Paul's language here, he's not under any sort of illusion. He knows that his death is coming. He knows that it's just around the corner, but then he gives us these two pictures in verse 6 that, that show what his perspective is on life. So I want us to consider both. First, he says that he is being poured out as a drink offering. This would have been an image that would have been common to the people of that day, both Jew and Gentile, because first, uh, in the first century, drink offerings were, were relatively common. It didn't matter if you were a worshiper of Yahweh or if you were a worshiper of a pagan god, drink offerings were relatively common. In the Old Testament, drink offerings were oftentimes paired with other sacrifices, and it was just simply pouring out some wine or some other form of strong drink upon the altar as an offering to God. Now, these drink offerings, they didn't have any sort of, of atoning significance. They didn't take away sin. They didn't make people right with God, anything like that. They were just this expression of gratitude. An expression of devotion to God. So when Paul says that he is being poured out as a drink offering, it's not this saying that I'm actually making myself right with God by what is happening to me right now, but instead he's saying my life is a sacrifice. My life is an offering of devotion and gratitude to God for his faithfulness to me. He's saying that my life of following Jesus has been one of sacrifice, but it's a sacrifice of thanksgiving for all that God has done for me. That Paul isn't focused on the fact that he might die. He isn't focused on what following Jesus has cost him. Instead, he is instead focused on what Jesus has given to him. That everything that Paul has done in service of the gospel for over 30 years has simply been this response of gratitude to Jesus for what Jesus had first done for him. And now he's standing, he's got, he's got death on the horizon, and he's just overflowing with thankfulness for the gospel. So that's the first image that he gives here. He says that my life is, is already being poured out as a drink offering. Second thing he says is, is that my departure is coming soon. This word departure used in a number of ways in the first century. One pastor compiled a number of different ways that this word was used. It was the word a farmer would use when he unyoked his oxen and finally let them go free at the end of the day. It was the word a soldier would use when he was finally picking up his tent to return home from the front lines. It was the word that a sailor would use when he would leave harbor to go into the open seas. It was the word a prisoner would use when he was at long last given his release. And what a beautiful way for Paul to describe his death. It's this phrase of, that's packed with meaning and significance. Words matter. And what Paul says here shows us his hope. To put it simply, you don't refer to death as a departure unless you have a hope in something that is to come. About five years before this, Paul was sitting in a different prison, writing a different letter to the church in Philippi, and he expressed his hope in that letter. It says this, for to me, to live as Christ and to die as gain, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And that's, the, that's like the north star of Paul's life. It's the guiding principle 
of his life, that as good as it is to serve Jesus now, it cannot compare to the glory of living in his presence. And Paul, when he wrote those words five years before he wrote this book, that moment now has finally come where he is about to depart because to depart and be with Christ is far better. Like the oxen, he is finally being unyoked and able to go free. Like the, the prisoner who is finally being released, he can finally enjoy freedom with the Lord Jesus. That freedom is at long last within reach. So for Paul, departure is not some fearful unknown, but it's to be with Jesus. And because Paul is faithful at the end, it's the culmination of a faithful life, not, not his entire life, but from the moment he became a Christian until this moment, he has lived a faithful life. And that's what is in mind here when Paul writes in verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. So here is Paul, and he's, he's looking back at his life, and he concludes that he has been faithful with what God has entrusted to him. And again, he uses some different pictures here. Here he uses three different pictures to describe his life. First, he says, I have fought the good fight. Or maybe a better way of saying this is, I have struggled in the worthwhile contest. This is an athletic picture here. I've struggled in the worthwhile contest. The, the, the picture that, that he's, he's evoking here is a, of this runner who is absolutely drenched with sweat at the end of a long run. It's the picture of a wrestler who, who is so close to exhaustion from exertion. The focus here isn't on the word, I have fought the good fight. The, the word is focused on this idea of the good fights, that the fight that Paul has given himself to has been good. It has been worthwhile. So Paul is looking back at his life, and as he looks back at everything, he said, I gave my all to the only race that was worth running. And can you imagine the freedom of getting to the end of your life? However much more time the Lord gives you. But getting to the end of your life and not being burdened with regrets, not this fearful unknown, but to say, as I look back at my life, I have given my all to the only race that is worth running. And this is the freedom of following Jesus. It's going to cost a lot. It costs Paul nearly everything. But it, the, the cost pales in comparison to the joy that comes from running the only race worth running. That this is the only way to live a life that is worth living. That's the first image he gives. Second image he gives is, is similar. He says, I have finished the race. So here is Paul, and he, he's standing, and, and from where, he can, where he's standing, he can, he can see the finish line off in the distance if you're familiar with the Old Testament, Moses brought the people of Israel out of Egypt 
And he got them to the edge of the promised land, but God said, you're not allowed to go in. But right before Moses died, God said, I want you to come up onto this mountain and I want you to see the promised land. And that's the image that I have right here of, of Paul. That Paul can, can see what he has longed for his entire life, just off in the distance. It will, it's, it's almost his. There's this hymn that I love. It's called On Jordan's Stormy Banks I Stand. It just sums up, I think, what, what Paul is experiencing here. It says this, On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. All over those wide extended plains shines one eternal day where God the Son forever reigns and scatters night away. So here is Paul, and, and he's looking off into the distance, and he can see the promised land. He can see what at long last will be his. Throughout his entire life, Paul has referred to his life as this race. Philippians chapter 2, he says, I'm holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Elsewhere, a couple chapters later, a chapter later in, in Philippians, he says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of, for the prize of the upward call of, Christ, of God in Christ Jesus. Right before he is arrested in the book of Acts, he's meeting with the, the leaders, the, the elders of the church in Ephesus, and he says, But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only... I may finish my course or my race and that the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's the life that he has lived, the, the race he is running. He's writing to the church in Corinth and he says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. There's a purpose in my life. There's a purpose in the decisions that I make as I follow Jesus. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. And here is Paul. He's, he's at long last at the point where his race is complete. And he looks back at his life. He has no regrets. And then he looks forward and he sees the finish line. Third thing Paul says, this third image he gives us, he says, I have kept the faith. And this is the language of someone who's been entrusted with a mission, entrusted with a task. For Paul, he's been entrusted with this sacred duty. And he says, I've completed it. I've accomplished it. Remember the context of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, there's all of these people, as persecution is ramping up in the empire, all of these people began to abandon the gospel in droves, and they actually abandoned Paul because Paul is kind of the, the, the figurehead of, of the church being persecuted. And yet in the midst of that, Paul has remained faithful to the gospel. So while other people have not kept the faith, Paul is now saying, you know what, I've made a pledge that God gave me a task. He gave me a charge. He said to me, Timothy, just like I am saying to you, fulfill your ministry, God said that to me. And now I'm at the end of my life and I can say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul remains faithful. And so Paul, 
He's looking backwards at his life, and then he looks forward to his future. That's the language of verse 8. As Paul is looking to the future, he focuses on this assured future that he has in Christ Jesus. It says this in verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So notice how Paul starts. He says, henceforth, or from here on out, from this point forward, there is laid up for me. In other words, he's saying, because I have kept the faith, because I have endured this persecution, because I still cling to the gospel, this future that is mine in Christ Jesus is guaranteed That the cries of of people around me that are saying, you know what, Paul, the reason you're suffering is because God has abandoned you, that they don't have any weight, they don't have any merit. It doesn't shake his confidence in the Lord Jesus. He says that because of this, because of what Christ has done for me, and because of my faithfulness, I will be given a crown of righteousness. In other words, I will be rewarded that this judge who sees all things, both the good and the bad. He's going to look at my life. He's going to see that I don't have any regrets, that I've run the only race that's worth running with my life, and he's going to give me a crown of righteousness. He's going to reward me for that. So here is Paul, and he's he's looking to this assured future, and he says that I'm going to be vindicated by the Lord Jesus himself. People have abandoned me, But Jesus is not going to abandon me. And as Paul comes to the end of his own life, and he's reflecting on the end of his own life, his ministry, he makes it clear that this isn't just a a future that's reserved for him. He tells us who this future is for. God will reward to me on that day this crown of righteousness, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So this beautiful gift is not something that's reserved for the apostles. It's not something that's reserved for pastors or for those who are in vocational ministry. But Paul says that this is for all of God's people who live their lives in light of Jesus' return And not just live their lives in light of that return, but they actually long for it. That they have loved his appearing, his return. That they shape their lives around the fact that Jesus is coming back and they can't wait. And what a way for this text to end, right? That it's not just Paul who has this future in glory to look forward to, but all of God's people who long for the return of Jesus, that they have this to look forward to. I think that's a word of encouragement, not just for Paul, but really for the rest of us. That Paul, he's, he's holding his life forward as an example for Timothy. He says, you know what, I've given you this charge and this charge to fulfill your ministry. And, and you might not know exactly what that looks like. Let me give you an example of what it looked like for me. And he, this faithfulness, this reward for faithfulness is not out of reach, but it's given to anyone who's going to persevere in the faith. Anyone who longs for the return of Jesus.
You know, as we, we began our time this morning, we, we began it by saying that this passage is, is Paul showing Timothy what a life well lived looks like. And this is Paul's message. He says that a life well lived does two things. It lives faithfully now, but it's probably because we are longing or looking expectantly for Jesus' return. A life well lived lives faithfully while looking expectantly to Jesus' return. So if you look at your own life, and as you consider your own life, you, you say, I, I want to live a life that's, that's worth living. I, I want to run the only race that, that is worthwhile, the only one that's worth running. I, I, I want to have this motivation to, to endure when things are hard. Paul says, look expectantly. Look longingly to the return of Jesus. And as I've considered this text, I've been working on it the last week, I've, I've done a lot of, of considering or thinking about Paul's strategy here. As Paul is, is wrapping up this letter, and what is the significance of, of spending this time talking about himself? And he, he reveals his life to Timothy, not because he thinks that he deserves to be put on this pedestal, but instead to say, Timothy, I'm going to give you one final example of a life to imitate. And as I've been reflecting on that this past week, I've considered, I think there's, there's probably two ways that this works out or the significance of this for the church today. First, and I said this earlier, this puts flesh on the commands of the Bible. It shows us what this looks like in our day and age. Let me use an example for my own life. Second Timothy is primarily written from an older pastor to a younger pastor. It's a very applicable book. It's a very helpful book for someone in my context and my, my role. And yet, at the exact same time that this is an immensely practical book, there are a lot of things that I, I'm left wondering, how exactly does this look today? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that the cultural context of the first century is slightly different than the context of the second, the 20, well, the second century, but also the 21st century. To say nothing of the fact that Paul and Timothy weren't married as far as we know. They didn't have kids as far as we know. I'm married and I have children. So what exactly does this look like to apply these gospel commands, this charge for those who are in vocational ministry, while living in a context and, and having a life situation that is different than the one that Paul and Timothy were in? And this is where it becomes extremely helpful to have the example of others to see those that have gone before us. No one's situation is identical to mine, but this shows me how do we put flesh on the commands of the Bible. This is one of the beautiful things about multi-site, that we have other pastors that I can see how they have lived out this command. They have lived out this calling, how they put these commands, this charge into practice. And this isn't just true for pastors. This is true for everyone. If you want to know exactly what it looks like to apply the Bible into a specific situation in your life, we do that by learning how others apply this into their lives. And this is one of the greatest arguments, I think, for why life groups are so crucial. 
Because in a life group, we apply God's word to our specific relationships, our specific struggles, our specific circumstances, and on and on and on. We call it a life group for a reason. It's because we, sh- we are shown, we see how, how the gospel works itself out in life of those who are around us. That's one reason why I think that this is just such a gift that the Apostle Paul uses himself as an example. It shows us the importance of examples of others. But there's another reason why this picture of, of imitation is so helpful for us, and I think that's because it spurs us on toward faithfulness. That when we see other people being faithful in situations that, that aren't identical to ours, but, but they're, they're transferable enough, it encourages us to, to pursue that same sort of faithfulness. Apostle Paul actually says this at the beginning of Philippians. He says, you know what, church, it's, it's actually kind of a good thing that I'm sitting here in this Roman prison because I've remained faithful to Jesus and everyone else around me, the church in Rome, they're seeing that and like, well, if Paul can do it, then we can too. That the example of others being in community, being in relationships and seeing the gospel applied to other people's lives encourages us to that same sort of faithfulness. That's why it's not a good thing. It's not a part of God's plan to not be in relationship with other Christians, to not be involved in the lives of other Christians, because we don't see how the gospel works itself out in life. Just a couple more thoughts as we close. I've considered what exactly does this look like for us today and Uh, I'm going to just share three words. Um, I guess they're not words. They're a lot more than three words. But but three things, not a lot of commentary of of what this might look like for us in our lives today. So the first thing is this. For some of us, we have a whole lot more in common with the Apostle Paul in our stage of life than we do with Timothy. That if we look at our lives, and we don't know what the future holds, but we can see, you know what, I'm closer to the end of the finish line than I am to the beginning. It might be 10 years, it might be 20, it might be even longer than that. But I have more years in the rearview mirror than I do in front of me. And as we consider what what the Apostle Paul has, has written here for Timothy, this is a challenge for us to consider how I am investing in the future of the church. How I'm using the wisdom that God has given me, how I'm using the experience that God has given me, how I'm using my example of how God has transformed my life to raise up and to empower and to strengthen, to set the next generation of the church up for success. That as you're getting to the end, you might not be able to see the finish line, but you're getting to the end, and you begin to see, you know what, I, I have I've, I've come close to, to completing the race that God has given to me. I want to make sure that I help others run the race that God has given to them. And maybe that's you. And as you consider this passage, just wrestle with what exactly that means for you. On the flip side, maybe you find yourself on the other end of the spectrum. That you are a lot like Timothy 
and, and not so much like Paul. And if that's you, are you being intentional in seeking out those relationships with those who are older in the faith, more mature in the faith, that those who we can learn from their example. You can learn from how God has transformed their lives and how they have applied the words of God into their lives. And maybe for, for you, the response to this passage is to say, you know what, I, I'm not in that kind of relationship, that I, I need to pursue those types of relationship with older men or with older women. So might God be calling you into that type of relationship? And the third thing, final implication of this passage, I think, is, you know, Paul ends by saying that Jesus is going to reward everyone who has loved his appearing, that they long for his return. How accurately does that describe you? That your life is influenced by this longing for Jesus' return. How near to your heart is the return of Christ? How often do you consider the return of Christ in your day-to-day actions, the decisions that you make? Does it influence your life decisions or not? One pastor from the early 1800s so one of my favorite quotes, um, the return of Christ should be our greatest motivation for holy living. What a powerful picture that is. That when we live our lives in light of Jesus' return, it should transform everything we do. Every word we say, every thought we think, every action we take. And so this passage, as it ends in verse 8, is a moment of reflection of, have, have I actually loved his appearing, appearance, his return? That is it transforming my life? In the 1600s, early 1600s, there was this man, um, Wenceslas of Bedova. That's a fun thing to say. I had to practice that a number of times before this sermon. And this man, he was being put to death for his faith. And in the moments before his death, he was asked by the authorities to deny his faith, deny his beliefs. And in response, he said, you know, I finished the race. Henceforth has laid up for me this crown of righteousness. And one of the people who was actually a part of putting him to death, grown up in the church before walking away, still knew a fair bit of the Bible and said, you're a fool because those are the words of the Apostle Paul. They're not for you. And this man just simply said, you forgot what follows. And not only for me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And then he was put to death and received that crown of righteousness. Last week we saw that God has has placed a claim on every single one of our lives. That God has given each and every one of us a charge. That he has entrusted a part to play in the kingdom of God. And that's the beautiful thing about God's plan. It doesn't rest on the shoulders of one or two people. 
It's a reason, there's a reason it's called the body of Christ. It's because all of God's people are a part of it and have a part to play. Different roles, yes, but still all to contribute to the same mission. How beautiful it would be to get to the end of your race without regrets, however long that would be, without regrets, because you've dedicated your life to the only race worth running. That we've kept our eyes on Jesus, on the return of Jesus, that we've longed for it, that we've loved his appearing, and that has transformed the way we live our lives today. Let's pray, church. God, help us to be a people who long for your return, that live faithfully in light of your return. God, I ask that you would now speak to each and every one of us, every single person here, those who are watching online, what it would look like for us to contribute to the flourishing of the church, to contribute to the flourishing of the kingdom of God. God, give us wisdom on whether we are called to to pour into and raise up new leaders in the church. God, maybe you're you're at work in our lives and and we're just at that point where we just need to, to learn more from other people. God, make that clear as well. God, help us to get to the end of our lives without regrets because we've run the race, the only race worth running. Help us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.